Lord, we come before you and just ask you to bless this time as we look into your word. We thank you for those that are here. We ask you to be with those that aren't and lead and guide us as we, as we look at this lesson today. In your son's precious name, amen. James chapter 4, verse 1. Well, actually, let's get some uh, context. We're going to start at verse 17 of chapter 3. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? Ye lust and you have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not, because you ask not. You ask and receive not, because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lust. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? But he gives greater grace, wherefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we'll stop there for a moment, because there's quite a bit here. Uh, James is going on, where come wars and fightings among you? Uh, are they not hence even your lust that war in your members? So he starts out with, he ends the last part of uh, chapter 3 with the righteousness, the fruit of the righteousness is peace. And you want to remember when you're reading the scriptures that the chapters and verses were put in after the fact, and they were put in there just to help us find things. Um, because when you look at all these guys who quote anything, they go, and the scripture says, or Isaiah says, and you have to kind of know where in those books this was said. And in our day, we would say, in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it says... And you'd go to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and there would be what was said. Uh, in their day, you, you just quoted the prophet, and everybody would have to know where to begin to look in that book. So sometimes they split chapters in places that don't make a whole lot of sense. And here he starts out with peace, and then he goes, and where do all the wars and fightings come? And we think about this. He's, in wars, he's literally talking about campaigns and conflicts. And then he talks about battles and quarrels. And how many times do we quarrel with people because we have to be right? So many times that is what the problem is. And we get down later on where he says we need to be humble. But isn't this usually what happens? I will fight to the death because I have to be right on whatever topic it is that we're talking about. And I can remember I used to be like this when I first graduated from Bible school and I thought I knew all the answers in the Bible, and I would argue and to the point of trying to win. And it's something that I've learned over the years of, it's really not that important. I don't have to be right. It doesn't matter to me if somebody thinks I'm right or wrong. Even if I know I'm right, I don't need to sit there and argue because God will be the one that convicts them. And here he's saying, it's our lust. It's our lust, it's our desires. And our greatest desire is for us to look good. How hard is it for us when somebody says bad things about us or to just step back and say, okay, God, you're my defense. I'm just going to let you defend. 
our first instinct, and usually what we do is argue and fight and try to defend ourselves. You're, you're making me look bad, I got to strike back. And all that does is cause conflict and wars. And we need to understand what he's saying here. Righteous people seek peace, they make peace. We don't end up having to look right. Because it doesn't matter whether others believe in the right or wrong. And this is what, what I've been reading a lot about is, we've got the world saying there's no absolute truth. Just because they believe it doesn't mean that it's true. Okay, I could believe that I can fly and I could go up to a cliff and jump off the cliff. It doesn't matter whether I sincerely believe that I can fly, I'm going to fall down. <laughs> and hopefully it's not a big cliff that I tried to do this off of. But we do this in all areas. If I'm telling people about Jesus Christ and the gospel and they don't believe it, I don't need to sit there and argue with them trying to make them believe it because it doesn't matter whether they believe it's right or wrong, God will work on their heart from planting the seeds. I share the gospel, I can defend the gospel, I can tell them why, why they should believe it, but I'm not, my job isn't to try to twist their arm into believing it, I am just there to present. If somebody comes against us as Christians, we're, are, we don't need to defend ourselves to the death. We just retreat into God and say, God, you're my defender, and let him be our defense. Otherwise, we sit there and we battle and, and fight and, and argue and live a miserable life. And usually when we do slip into that area where we try to defend ourselves, we get done with it, and then we, then we kind of hit ourselves over the head like, you know, what did I do that for? I didn't, nothing good came from this. And so we sit back and we say, it's, it was us. It was just our pride popping up and saying, I've got to be right. My lust, my desires. It says in verse 2, You're, you lust and you have not. And this is kind of an interesting thing because he's saying in here, this not in this, and you, you lust and you have not. In Greek, this is a word that it's a negative when you expected a positive answer. We lust after something and we expect to get it. And yet sometimes God resists us, and most of the time he resists us, and we don't get what we so think we desire. Sometimes he lets us get it, and we still don't get what we thought we desired. And this we see oftentimes when people gain the top of whatever they're, they're seeking, whether it's the business world, they get to the top and think that's going to satisfy them, and it doesn't satisfy them. They get to the top of the music industry and realize that having the the triple platinum record and, and fans adoring them isn't satisfying them the way they thought it would. They get to be an actor or an actress and they get to the top. They're, they're wanted for all the movies because their name sells the movies and they realize that it doesn't make them happy. And it says, you lust but you don't get. You're not getting what you want because they're lusting after the wrong thing. And lust here is an inordinate affection. It's not the desire to seek God or anything. It is, I, I want something so bad that I'll do what it takes to get it. And then I find out it isn't what I wanted. And we've all been there at some time when there's something in our life that we really, really wanted. We thought it was going to fill us up. And we got to the, do it, and it just didn't satisfy. And the world is filled with that because what we are really seeking is God himself. And without knowing it, people are seeking God, and when they find God, he's the one that satisfies and fills all the desires that they 
look at in the wrong places. And some people will look at it in, in uh, work or the satisfaction of some skill. They'll, you know, they'll look at it in, in sinful activities of, of becoming drunks or, or uh, uh, substance abuse. They might try to do it through sexual encounters. I mean, we have all different ways that we try to fill that need and lust or need in our life. And the only thing that will fill it is God. And he says, you lust after things and you don't get the answer. You kill and you desire to have, but you cannot obtain. And this one, it is, again, it is, in this one, he had said, again, expecting that affirmative. We strive, we work, and we still don't obtain. We fight in war, in war yet we have not. We tried our best, and we cannot fulfill that peace that God is going to fulfill. And that's why we look back at this, at chapter 3. He said, the fruit of righteousness. How do we get righteousness? We come to Jesus Christ. He fills us. He clothes us with his righteousness. And then he brings out peace. He brings out peace. He brings out mercy. He brings out entreating of people. And he said, because you ask not. Okay. He, James here is saying, you don't have these things because you're not asking the right person for this peace. And in this particular case, the not is an absolute not. It, it's saying, you know, you're not asking the right person, and therefore you're not getting what it is, and that is the expected answer. If you don't ask, you're not going to receive from God. And then in verse 3, he gives us, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. Many people who pray and ask things of God are not really asking in the name of Jesus. They're looking at, God, I want this so that I can look good or have what I think I want. And it goes right in line with the first two verses. I don't have, I, I lust after things and I don't get it. I, you know, and God's saying, if you're not asking for the right things, he's not planning to give them to you. People will go, God, I need a million dollars. Well, what do you need a million dollars? Well, I need a nice house and car and clothes. And I mean, I got to look good, God. Yeah. And God said, nope, you're not going to get a million dollars. God, I need a million dollars because we're building this church. It's going this, this homeless outreach that needs beds and, and, and a chapel and a, and a dining room. And you're much more likely to get the million dollars you're asking for because you're asking for it so that God can be glorified. Now, he probably won't give you the million dollars. He'll probably give you people that will give you the stuff that you need. But, but the idea is he'll give you, because you're asking with the right spirit, he will give you what you need. And I love the reading about uh, praying Hyde. He, was a, he ran orphanages, and he taught his children to pray. And many times he'd have the children sitting down for breakfast, and there'd be no breakfast. And as they're pray, pray, asking, giving grace and you know, praying, you know, thanking for the food, Somebody would knock on the door and it'd be a farmer who had broken down and had a truckload of milk or vegetables or, you know, and they would bring it in and there would be their breakfast. You know, it was, you know, just the faith that he was teaching them to have was just, nothing's there, thank you for what we're going to have, and there it is. And there's all kinds of stories where these miraculous things happen to take care of the kids in the orphanage because they asked for the right spirit. They weren't looking to consume it upon themselves. They were looking to help the helpless, in this case, all these kids. But God says, we don't get because we ask incorrectly. 
and we want to consume, devour it on our own lusts, our own desires. And I've heard people praying, they got to have a car. And they're not just praying for a car. They, they're, what they're praying, what they end up praying for. And, I've, and you hear this sometimes in the really name it and claim it circles. You know, God, ask God for specifics. I go, God, I want a, a, a 2000, you know, 14 red sports car, you know, in good condition. You know, and they put all this, you know, very specific things. And, you know, and they're not praying it so they can live, you know, lift up God. They're praying so they can look good in their, their red, you know, their, their fairly new red sports car. And they don't usually pray for a new one because they, that would be too, too much less, you know. But God is saying, you know, I will give you what you need. I'll give you what reaches out and, and touches the community. And this we see over and over in, in people's lives where God meets the needs meets the, the desire to reach out to the world. And this is so important that we understand. He'll give us anything that we ask according to his name and his reputation to lift him up and to build him up. But if we're looking at things just to help us, it's not going to happen. Because he doesn't really care about how good we look. He cares about how good he looks. And he'll make us look good at times because it'll make him look good. But he's not going to care. And this is the attitude I've always had. When people go, well, you know, you need, you know, you need a new car. I go, a car is only something to get from point A to point B. And that's my attitude toward about, about a car. I don't need a bright, shiny, new, new car. I just need a car that gets decent gas mileage and gets me from my house to the church and, and back again. And so we look at this and say, okay, here it is. Now, does that mean God will never bless us with something that we could use just to make us look good? Nope, that happens all the time too. God can give us great blessing because he's a father who wants to love us. And so we look at this and say, but it's not because we pray for something to make us look good. There's things I want to see our church do that, that, that I pray about because I want to see God do great things. I want to see him bring ministry that we can do to the community. And... I guess the first thing we need is people, people to be able to do these ministries. So maybe I need to be praying for the people more than the ministries, but God knows what to do and how to do it. And so I pray for the ministry, but there's things I'd love to see us doing to reach out to the community and help the community because it's very important. And, we're, and I believe God's gonna answer those prayers. He's gonna give us a great outreach from this church again. Verse four, you adulterers and adulteresses Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And here the idea of adulterer is, is somebody who is placing something before God. It's more of a spiritual adultery that he's talking about. You know, he goes, do you want to be a friend with the world? And this was all through the Old Testament where God accused Israel of playing the harlot. Because you've gone after a whoring after other gods. You have, you have, you've become a prostitute seeking other gods and you've abandoned me. And here is James using basically that same image. Going after the world, trying to be friends with the world. And it is a really strong word that whosoever therefore is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. An enemy. The world, those that aren't saved, are enemies of God. And that's what it tells us in, in Romans. 
that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemy, he died for us. And he's saying, those who want to be friends with the world, you're against God. Because the world is against God. Satan is completely and 100% against God, and he puts all these lies out there that says, whatever God, and we've talked about this, whatever God says is true, Satan has multiple lies to make us think otherwise. When God says we are to be honest in our marriage and have sex only within marriage, the world comes along and says, well, no, that's not a big deal. You know, just, you know, God just has killed you. He doesn't want you to have fun. And yet we know that those who have multiple partners end up having major problems because there's a spiritual attachment, a soul attachment to each individual that they have sex with, and there's a union there. And God has designed that, that when that, that union is brought about. So they end up having all these different attachments to everybody, and then all the other physical and, and, and sociological problems that come along with it. And God says, you should have done it my way. We see somebody like Solomon who had, you know, by the time he got done, a thousand women in his life, you know, between his wives and his concubines. And we look at all the problems that that brought to him. And God is saying, you cannot do things your way. How many times do we try to do things our way? God, I don't need to take a day off and, and just rest and worship you. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves way off in left field someplace, not worshiping God at all. Because we do it our way. God, I don't need to do and put, put whatever is in there. And it leads to pain and, and agony. It always does. God, I can handle this. I can, I can do this. Uh, I'll just live with, against what you say. And we see the pain. Over and over again, I've seen people who've gotten married to somebody that, and being unequally yoked and then suffering from that point on. Now, every once in a great while, somebody will, will have a decent marriage and the person will get saved and you know, their life will be turned around. But those are so few that it's not worth disobeying God for. And we see that he says, if you want to be a friend of the world, you're an enemy with God. Conversely, if we're going to be a friend of God, we're going to end up being an enemy to the world. Now, it doesn't say that specifically here, but Jesus did say, they hated me, they will hate you. So we need to understand that when we're following God, we're seeking after God, the world is going to come against us as a whole. And, that's, and that is a good question as to far, how far they will go. And also, that is what... There are people like behind the Iron Curtain who used to wonder how come Christians weren't being killed and crucified and persecuted in America. Part of it is because we started on righteous rules. And in America, there's still a lot of Christian influence in our society, even though it's waning and it's slipping. But there's still this idea that life is precious. They may not remember why it's precious because we're created in the image of God, but there is an idea that life is precious. And when you're totally in the world, life isn't considered precious. Well, it's not everybody. It's not everybody that's going to hate you, but those who, but by the same token, you stand the way Jesus did on sin, and you say that sin is sin, you will end up having people hate you. Now, the problem is, a lot of times, we don't say that what they're doing is sin. 
And so if we're not going to sit there and say that with their sin, there's nothing for them to hate. Now, Jesus didn't go around condemning everybody, but he also did not allow them to live in their sin. Because a lot of people will look at, well, look at the woman who had the committed, you know, caught in the act of adultery. He didn't condemn her. Yeah, but what did he tell her? Go and sin no more. He did not tell her that her actions were okay. He said, you have sinned, stop doing it. And he did that often with people. You know, we want to be careful because the Jesus that the world wants to believe in is this loving, kind Jesus. They don't want to consider the Jesus who went into the temple with a whip and threw the money changers out of the, out of the te temple, you know, because that definitely doesn't fit the loving Jesus. You know, when, you, when you're going in with a whip, throwing the tables out and saying, get out of my father's house, you're not being, it wasn't, well, I, think you better, I think you better get out of my father's house. You know, it was, he was probably yelling, You've made my father's house a den of thieves. Get out as he's cracking the whip and, and throwing, you know, throwing, turn, overturning their tables. So this was not the, the loving, kind Jesus that people want to believe in. It's a very hard decision because you don't want to turn them off so bad that you can't talk to them. But you've got to be able to say that what they're doing is wrong. And you've got to walk a very fine line. And this is why many pastors in many churches will not call anything a sin because they don't want to offend people because they want to keep them in their church. Well, the problem with that is if you're not going to call something a sin, what do they need to be saved from? There are people that don't like me because I call sin, sin. And that's fine by me. If they don't like me, that's fine because God, I have the higher calling to be answerable to God. So if they're not going to like me because I call sin a sin, that's between them and God and you know do I love them of course I love them do I want them to be in the church of course I want them to be in the church because then they can hear the gospel message and maybe get right with God and then God will correct their sinful lifestyle but I'm also not going to keep them here be able to say well no we're not going to talk about sin we're going to talk about sin when it comes up and share it and if, and if people get angry they get angry because that is what God says will happen when you take a stand. A friend of mine in California that does a lot of street evangelizing, uh, not from a, a street corner or anything, but from his travels and everything. And his big saying all the time is to everybody, he's got a one line, it's Jesus loves you. And I often wonder, you know, that's very true and it's very important, but how effective is it to just anybody out there that hears that? When they hear that, what makes them respond and want to know more? If it's said in the right tone and attitude, it can start the conversation well because most people are truly looking for love, even though they don't understand what love is. And this is the problem that people have, and this is, I talked about this the other day. When we use these terms, we have to define them. When we talk about love, most people think of this sugary sweet thing that accepts any, any activity, any, anything that goes on. But true love will also bring in some discipline. If we truly love our children and, and, they, and we live on a busy street, we're going to teach them that they can't run into the street. And that is true love. If, you know, people go, well, you, you can't put rules on them. That's, you, know, you, can't, you can't make them feel bad about doing it. Well, I'm going to feel really bad if they run into the street and get hit by a car. And so will they if they live. It's a good way to start and see how they respond because a lot of people, well, there's no way he'd love me if he knew me. And that gives you, an, again, an opening to say, oh, he knows you so much. He knows, it, he knows our sin. 
Okay, and they go, yeah, I love you know, oh, you know, I, yeah, nobody loves me. Again, you get an open an opening to show and share his love and how much he loved you. Can you always have the same line to open? I don't know. I'm, I mean, I've not used the same line. I don't even use the same witnessing you know tool when I go into everybody. But I do know the one thing that's important. It's somewhere when I'm talking to somebody about the gospel, we've got to let them know they're a sinner, and let them know that that they deserve hell and that Jesus paid the price. So Jesus loves you is a good way to start. Well, yeah, I don't know about that. And you start explaining, you know, well, yes, you know, we understand we're all sinners and define sin and define love. You know, God loved you so much, he went to the cross. And you could even do it with John 3.16 that even to this day, most people know, you know, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth should not perish but have everlasting life and you go over each little piece of it and just explain God loved you you know God loves you and he gave his son so that you could spend eternity with him so if you start with Jesus loves you and somebody's talking to you John 3 16 is a great verse to go into to give the gospel message you know you know look how much God loved you he sent Jesus to die for your sin so that you could go to heaven and then you can go, all you have to do is believe that. Believe you're a sinner. Believe that he died for you so that you can go to heaven. Is that something you would be interested in doing? And then lead them in the prayer and get them into a church. It's, an, it's a powerful tool. It's a powerful way to start into it. And, and like I say, if you're going to use that line, Jesus loves you or God loves you, then you, John 3.16 is a very good verse to use as the verse that you're talking to them with. It's a good way, and, but again, everything will always come down to sin is the major issue that we're dealing with as Christianities. Jesus paid for sin. And because he paid for the sin, we can enter into God's presence. But we've got to understand that sin is the issue. Sin is what separates us from God, and Jesus paid that price. Without getting them you know, to where they know they're a sinner, you can never know that you need need to be saved if somebody's swimming in the ocean or the lake and they're swimming just fine they don't need a lifeguard they don't need to be saved and if somebody thinks they're swimming okay without without a need they don't need to be saved in their mind now we know that they need to be saved that you know and they know that ultimately know they need to be saved because they know that they're not fulfilled but until they actually understand that sin has consequence and that sin will lead them to hell, they don't need to reach out to a savior. So by pastors whitewashing sin, they're not doing anybody a favor. Nobody, because there's no need to come to Christ if there's no sin. You know, why do I need Jesus? You know, I'm okay myself. There, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not telling me there's anything wrong with me, so. But the minute we start telling people about them being sinners, what usually will end up, if the, if the spirit is not motivating them to listen, is that they'll ruffle their feathers and, and start defending themselves, and we will start being somebody they don't want to be around because we told them that they're a sinner. Usually I will modif mollify them by going, you know, we're all sinners, myself included, but we all sin, we all deserve hell. But usually when you start talking about we all, all they're hearing is, I'm a sinner and you're, you're judging me unless the spirit is working in their life. So this is why Jesus said they're going to 
hate you. The world is going to be turned off when we present the fact that they're sinners because they don't like that. But until they accept that they're sinners, they've got nothing to be saved from. Because we give the gospel message, we will be disliked and some people will be turned off by it. But the seed is still planted. Even if it's done and somebody gets really mad at us, that is okay because the seed's been planted. It's possible. Look at the prophets and they gave a message that didn't want to be heard and they would be jailed or spat on or hit, actually killed in some cases. Because if, we're, if we are too cautious and we're liked by the world, that means we're not giving them the message that they need to hear. And I don't mean we go get abusive and attacking on them. I mean, because we can, in our conversation, be able to just bring in, God loves you. Let me tell you how much he loves you. Bring in the idea that they're a sinner. You know. But again, if they don't understand they're a sinner, they're not going to understand they need the Savior. And when we bring up the idea that they are a sinner, they're not going to like us. This is why when somebody gets saved, they get in trouble with their family so often because they push their family so hard and, when they're, and they're excited when they first get saved and they're telling them uh, they're sinners going to hell and that's not the best way to present it anyway. But, you know, again, like your friend says, you know, Jesus loves you. And then you get into a conversation. You can use the verses to show how much he loves you and why he loves you and, and why, you need, why you need him. That's gentle. They might still not like it when you're telling them that they are a sinner. And this is why over years, most Christians will stop having non-Christian friends, not because they're trying to not have Christian friends, but because they've shared the gospel enough with their non-Christian friends. Excuse me. They will have none. They will stop having non-Christian. Yeah, non not because they're trying to not be friends with the world, but the world gets tired of hearing about Jesus and, and salvation and sin. So they pull away and you end up hanging out with other Christians unless you purposely go places, you know, join a, join a sports team or bowling league or pinochle club or, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, you know, you purposely do something to put you out in with the lost world. Because your friends start saying, well, you know, this is a fanatic. And I'm that way. I will tell people about Jesus all the time, so I get labeled as a fanatic. And I don't really mind because I am. I am a fanatic for Jesus. I know many fanatics, Arizona Cardinals, and many fanatics for the Diamondbacks, and whatever other teams are out there, you know, uh, fanatics for the NASCAR, whatever it might be, they're fanatics, and it's okay to be a fanatic for sports or your, or your favorite hobby, but it's supposedly not okay to be a fanatic for God. So I don't care if they label me a fanatic because I am. I, I have no problem being that. I used to be a football fanatic, you know, so, I, and I was well known for that, but God has moved me into being very fanatical for him. And if people don't like it, I can't help that. I've got to talk about what's important to me. I've learned to do it gently and not be too, too abrasive, but when you tell people that sin is sin and, and sin takes you to hell, that is abrasive to them. And you can do it as kind as you want, but it's still abrasive. And it still can drive people to not want to be around you or to be angry with you or maybe even to the strength of hate. No matter how gentle you tell somebody they're a sinner, you're still telling them there's something they don't, that they don't want to be. Especially in this world where my thoughts are supposed to be equal with their thoughts and if they don't believe that they're sinning, then I'm not supposed to be able to tell them that they're a sinner. 
And then they'll turn around and say, well, you're intolerant. And you know what I tell them is you're absolutely right. I am the most intolerant person you're going to come across because God has standards. Whether you like it or not, God has standards. So by the, today's definition, Christians are very intolerant if we're going to stand with Christ. We're going to call sin a sin. If somebody's stealing, we're going to call it a sin. If somebody is committing fornication, we're going to call it a sin. If somebody is telling lies, we're going to call it a sin. So, and all the other sins out there, we call them sins and tell them that the rages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And the minute we say that they're committing sin, they're not going to like it, unless God is working on their heart to accept it. One question we've got to ask all of these people is, by having diversity, is it watering down your own core beliefs? And you can find out if anyone's sitting on the fence or if they actually truly believe in any issue for that matter. They're going to take a stand for it. Diversify their Those who truly believe that everybody's views are equal don't really believe anything. The thing about it is there's very few people who don't truly believe what they believe. They've just been trained that they can't defend it or, or talk about it. And this is, rolls over into Christianity. Okay, I truly believe that these things are all sin, but I, I can't say it because everybody will think I'm, I'm being judgmental or whatever. But you cannot defend what you believe if you can't start saying that somebody's right and somebody's wrong. That doesn't mean we get arrogant and argumentative. It just means there is right and there is wrong. Just because you don't believe that there's a right doesn't mean it stops being right. And this is important for us to understand. And we're seeing more and more people in our day and age doing what they're calling designer religion. Okay, and what they mean by that is, I like when Jesus said this, I like that, so I grab hold of it. I like what Buddha said over here, and I grab hold of this, and I put it over here. And I, I kind of like what uh, Zen philosophy says here, and I like this other statement of Jesus. I don't like those, some of these hell statements and sin statements, so we're going to ignore them. And they make up their own designer religion. And basically, what are they doing? They're making themselves God. I'm picking and choosing what I want to believe because I am God. And they're agreeing with Satan. You know, they're elevating themselves up. I'm the one that determines what God is. So therefore, I determine what right and wrong is. So therefore, I am God. And most of them won't go that far. They're not believing that. But that really is what they're saying. I am so divinely God that I can pick and choose what I want to believe and it is right. And it's a very terrible place to be. We need to be able to say, I'm pinning my hope on God. And I've said this before, I have a lot more respect for somebody who says, I'm a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu or whatever it is, and I'm going to believe all of their tenets and you know, pinning their whole future on that religion, even though it's wrong in, in, you know, as far as I'm concerned with the biblical point of view, I still have more respect in that person than somebody who's piecing together all these different religions and saying, I'm going to pick and choose what I want to believe. And I don't like these bad things, so I'm going to ignore them. I just like these good sayings because they are trying to elevate themselves to a position of God. I'm the authority. I am the authority, and we see this over and over again, which is why I tell people, I'm betting my whole life that this book is right. I'm betting my entire eternity that this book is right. What it says is true, and if, it's, if, I, if anybody shows me where it is absolutely not true, then I have to throw the book away and say, I've got to go find something else to bet my eternity on, which would be probably, if it was ever to happen, it would be nothing, because there's nothing worth out there 
nothing out there worth looking at. But looking at the scriptures, that they've always been right. They're always accurate. There are no contradictions. There's things that are hard to understand, but there's no contradictions. Verse 5. Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? But he gives more grace. Wherefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is what he says. Is the scripture saying anything in vain or empty? No, the scripture says nothing in empty. And it says that in us, the spirit that dwells in us before we're saved is a spirit of envy. Envy is a very strong word. The definition for envy is ill will at another's good fortune because one wishes that it had been themselves. We envy when somebody says, look at my new car, and we look at it and go, well, I wish that was my car. What do they do to deserve that car? Instead of going, oh, what a nice car. It's wonderful. God blesses somebody's ministry, and sometimes the pastors will look at it and say, well, I don't know why they got blessed. They're no better than us, you know, and we get upset because God didn't bless us. You look at somebody, you know, I just got promoted at my job. Well, why'd they get promoted? I mean, it should have been, should have been me. I... This is what envy is, and it says, our natural spirit envies. And this is really true. It is the first thing that comes into the lost world's mind, and even many Christians, that I'm not going to be happy for the good that somebody else has because I feel it should, that I'm not being blessed enough or it should have been me. That is the first reaction that we have unless we have been grown enough in Christ that we actually truly love people enough to say, oh, that is great. I am so happy that you got blessed. And that should be our attitude as a Christian because in us, as a Christian that lives in us, is the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God wants what's best for the individual, whether we think they deserve it or not. doesn't matter. God obviously felt that they deserved whatever it is, and maybe they got what they got just so they could be drawn away from their lust and realize that it's not what's going to answer it and that they need God. Sometimes they get given all this stuff just so they realize that it's empty and that they need God. And many of the wealthy people who are striving after wealth and they get there to the end and realize it doesn't fit is God trying to get their attention saying, it doesn't work. See, you've got everything and it doesn't fulfill. I'm the one you need. Now, it doesn't always work, but God does give people enough rope to hang themselves, basically. Get to the top. You know, you wanted to get to the top. You wanted to get to, to wherever it is. You're there. Are you happy yet? Come to me. And he says, our spirit within us lusts and envies. And then the word but, which I always love the word but, but he gives greater grace Wherefore, he said, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proud, desiring our, what, what we think is best for us. Look at me. You know, how, look how good I am. I, I've got this, that, or the other thing that I'm, I'm really doing good. God resists. He opposes the proud. And how many times have we gotten pri- prideful about something and then just as Proverbs tells us, pride goes before the fall and then we fall flat on our face. There are people that will go out and they will try hard to, to stay out of this sin and they'll get proud and say, I haven't committed this sin for years. You see it a lot of times with people who are getting out of alcohol and drugs. I haven't had a drink for 
28 years, and the next thing you know, they're, they're having a drink because God's resisted them because of their pride. And, you know, and this happens in all sins. You know, I am so strong, I would never do, you know, put it in whatever you think it is that you would never do. And some of these pastors and ministries that have had adulterous affairs, I am absolutely sure that they have probably said in their lifetime, I would never have, commit adultery. Just won't happen. Well, it's not that hard for it to happen when you're, when you're not putting a guard on your life. Have just a few arguments with your wife. Have somebody that you're counseling that kind of starts you know, liking you because you're giving them counsel and they're getting their life straightened out and your, guard, and your guard's down and the next thing you know, something happens. Very few people go out saying, I think I'm going to go commit adultery today. It usually is a very slow process where you're where you get stroked just a little bit and you feel that you haven't been getting it and the next thing you know, you've committed adultery. It's, you know, it's something that's insidious and it's got to be very careful and if you're too proud to say this will never happen, almost anything in your life that you say will not happen is almost guaranteed that God's going to let that part of your life come crashing down around you. you know, and it's something that he wants us to be humble. He wants us to be humble and then he gives us grace as we're humble. God, I can't do anything. So he says, okay, that's good. I'll do it. Yeah, I want you to be yoked around on me. I will be the one that delivers you. I will be the one that helps you through this. I will give you the deliverance that you need. So we want to be able to say, God, you're my defense. You're the one that I care for. You're the one that I'm seeking help from. Verse 7 says, Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How do we resist the devil? We humble ourselves, and we submit ourselves to God. We cannot resist the devil in our own strength. And this is a scary thing when I, when I see some of these people you know, going around commanding demons to do this, that, or the other thing. And I'm going, I sure hope submitted to God before you start trying to command demons because I wouldn't even try it. I would let God be the one because if you're not totally submitted to God and you start trying to resist the devil, he's not going to flee from you. And we're told that we have the lust of the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We have three things working against us without the demons working it at all. Satan does not, Satan and the demonic world do not have to be near us for us to sin. They will come around if we're starting to follow God and get a little, you know, and, and tickle the different, you know, areas of our life to try to get us to sin. But we don't need them to be involved for us to sin because we are sinners. Again, the key to this is submit, hupotasso, to, to align under God, and then we resist the devil and he, he flees. Not just go up against God, you know, against Satan, thinking we're, we're all that because we're saved. If we're not submitted, we're not prayed up, we're not confessed up to date, we better not be dealing, trying to tangle with demons. Because they will recognize that the power isn't there. We're not submitted to God, and they'll recognize the power is not there. Very important. All right, last verse we'll deal with today. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is the idea that I keep telling us over and over. When we are having trouble in our life, we tend to pull away from God. And that means that we get further away from him. Not because God left us, but we leave him. 
Here it says, if we draw toward God, we draw to him, he comes closer to us. This is such a wonderful, wonderful place to be. And I've experienced it so many times. If I'm down, I'm depressed, I'm having a hard time, I get into his word. I sing worship songs. I play my, I play my Christian CDs. I listen to Christian music. I listen to a Christian pastor speak. I want to draw close to God. And then he gives me something to do and, and makes me feel, and I start feeling better. You know, and this is the whole idea of when I'm down, if I go and hide, I just get worse. And this is the problem with people who get depressed. They go, I'm depressed, I don't want to be around people. So they hide in their bedroom or their room or their house and don't deal with people. And the result is they get more depressed <laughs> because they dwell on all the negatives because there's nothing out there. But if you draw closer to God, you go out and you help people in God's name and you get out there and you start doing things and, and you start praising God and you start lifting them up, all of a sudden you kind of realize, I'm no longer depressed, I'm no longer sad, I'm no longer whatever it might be, because I got out. And I've seen this over and over again. I know family members who get depressed easy and they just withdraw. And when I see them withdrawing, I try to pull them back out of their withdrawn, withdrawing and say, get out, talk to people, spend time with God. Even if you can't talk to people, spend your time with God, get into his word, listen to the Christian music, start saying, God, I want you, and watch what he does for you. But here we draw close to God, we draw near to him, and he draws near to us. The prodigal son returned to the father, and what did the father do? He ran to the son to welcome him. Uh, we see this happening so often with God, and and how much that he loves us and keeps us and how much he wants to protect us. We draw nigh to him, we draw close to him and he is the one that comes to us. All right, let's uh, close here because I'm gonna leave the second half of this because it leads into the next verse and we'll kind of pick up an eight again next week. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you. Lord, we do ask that you give us opportunities to share you that we will be ones that people, some people will love because they want to hear the message and some will not like being around us because we are going to take a stand that you have. And we just thank you for all of this in your son's name. Amen.